This show is brought to you in part by APTN. It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. And if you aren't and you're listening on uh, in Toronto or Ottawa, but you know someone outside the area that might want to listen in or perhaps go to our website and uh, check out some of our previous uh, podcasts that uh, from the show. They are up on our website, and you can go there and listen to them. But if you go to the uh, Radio Player Canada app and download it, and maybe you want to send that to somebody else and say, hey, check it out, you download this, type in 106.5 or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country. That might benefit our, our guest here today because... Uh, he has, in fact, uh, spent a lot of time from the on the West Coast, and he is now in Toronto, Dr. Jeffrey Anslus. He is an assistant professor of Indigenous Mental Health, Education, and Social Policy in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto and the Ontario Institute for Studies of Education. I'd like to welcome him to the show. Thanks for coming in today. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me here. Great to be here. So, you know, uh, that's a bit of a mouthful right there in terms of the introduction, <laughs> in terms of what you do. But I, I have to say that I was reading over some of, the, some of the things that you get into at the university and some of the things that you oversee in your research. And uh, I'd like to just expand on that a little sure. bit, if you don't mind. So, uh, first of all, just to give a little bit of background about uh, Dr. Jeffrey Angelus, he is, in fact, Cree and a uh, mixture of Cree and English, and he's a member of the Fisher River Cree Nation and uh, in Treaty 5, and he was born and raised in the heart of Treaty uh, 1 territory in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So he's, he's been across the country a little bit, I guess, and spent some time, and he probably knows some things about the, the territories of this land. But as I was saying, you know, he, 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 in his research, check this out, for instance. One of the things he does is analyzing social, economic, political, and environmental dimensions of Indigenous people's health and the impact of these on psychosocial well-being. Okay, now can you please translate? <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's a lot. Big, big fancy words, yeah. as my mom would say. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of times when people talk about mental health issues mm. or health in general, we think of we immediately think of hospitals, doctors, mm. nurses, mm-hmm. um, or we think about medications or going to psychotherapy. And while these things are you know important. Uh, I think for a lot of Indigenous people, the issues that are impacting um, our health and in particular issues around mental health often don't start with us as people. They're starting with the environments that we're living in. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's uh, people often think about like, you know, what are the reasons that people are depressed? Well, mm. if you live in conditions where there's been chronic underfunding of housing mm-hmm. or if you live in conditions sure. where you're constantly being surveilled by policing, yeah. Um, that's racist or these sorts of things. It, it is depressing to live in that kind of environment. Residential schools. Residential <laughs> schools, you know, the things that have impacted us across yeah. you know, history and relationship right. to the Canadian government and mm-hmm. the British and French before that. You know, those things have not only, you know, intergenerational impacts, yeah. but they also um, affect people's sense of well-being and quality of life. Mm. Um, and so we like to think about researching in health and in mental health in particular as asking questions, not just about you know, what can we do to make, um, you know, people more resilient, but also how can we make life more livable and life more full of the things that nourish our people's spirit and vitality? Mm. Now, it, on the surface, it sounds like stuff we've heard about a lot of, right? yep. this kind of thing. 
So I'm, I'm wondering where where do you look for differences or where do you mm-hmm. tap into mm-hmm. things that, that you can go deeper with and, right. and get a better understanding that can, that can help and benefit people? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've gotten better at doing in the last decade is to say, hey, we know that like colonialism, for example, or racism, for mm. example, they're they're not good things and mm. they make us feel depressed. Right. You know, we're good right. at naming the problem, but yeah. we're not always very good at describing how that actually happens day to day. So like, what does it actually mean to be impacted by colonialism day to day? Well, for a lot of indigenous young people, that means encounters with police. It means um, when they go to get health care, they get 70 cents to the dollar in terms mm-hmm. of public funding. Mm-hmm. Um, they live in environmental conditions where resources are being extracted and the environment is getting more and more toxic. Mm. Um, but no one seems to be paying attention to those sort of details. Yeah. So, we, so it's, it's more getting at like describing what's actually happening on the ground in day-to-day life. So would this be an example? Uh for instance, we know that clean water on many First Nations is an issue, mm-hmm. and it is something that every Canadian in this country should have, right. and yet many Indigenous First Nations do not have. That's right. Would you consider that an environmental condition that would affect someone's mental health? Absolutely. We're actually leading a, a pilot study right now that's looking at that very issue mm. in Northern Ontario mm. and looking at mapping. You know, we, we have about a decade's worth of data that looks at the communities that have been most impacted by the issue of suicide mm. and overlaying that data with um, questions around environmental issues. And, and, and one of those in particular is the issue of, of water. Um, and it's interesting. We're, I can't speak too much about our findings yet, yeah. but we, we do think that there are some relationships between things like, um, you know, water boil advisories, um, dust and sort of air contamination, Mm. um, the impact of forestry or resource development in our communities. Um, I think a lot of the times it's because, you know, there's either something, you know, cities are are dumping waste right near our communities, (laughs) making it feel very disposable, or they're extracting what's good in our communities and taking it away. And so I think these are, these are real issues that I think on, on, a very real level of our bodies can impact our health, but also, you know, in terms of how we feel about yeah, ourselves, I so. think I think that can have substantial impact. Uh, yeah, that's a good point you just raised, and and we course, of course we know those things, uh, but if I mean I think anyone could put themselves if they think of it in those terms, you know, uh, what does that mean when when uh, pollutants are being put it right next to your community where mm-hmm. you're living? Mm-hmm. What does that say about how the the general uh, way people are viewing you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they're extracting the good that that they want to, the wealth they want to take away from you, mm-hmm. and not giving anything back, again, how does that reflect on you as a person? What, right. what kind of right. a sense does that give you of your your well being as well? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, can I ask you a question? It, it's a general sure. question, and it has to do with research and mm-hmm. and the 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 um, uh, when that stuff is compiled. Yep. Um, I, I, I sat on a, on a committee once where a university was involved with some research that was being done on Six Nations. And uh, the, the, the research, one of the things that the community uh, requested was, if you're going to do this research, we get to benefit from this research. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't get to stay with just you, the university, because we're the people that you're doing this research on. It, are research, uh, uh, you know, things like this, are, are they... Are they uh, are they usually amicable in terms of how the information is changed? Or are they usually mm-hmm. locked up by the, the university or in, the mm-hmm. institute that is doing it? How how do you you know? Yeah, I think you make a great point. You know, in a lot of ways, um, Canadian universities are kind of one of the final holdouts mm-hmm. of kind of colonial institutions, mm-hmm. and I think they do like to kind of accumulate mm-hmm. information about communities and not always 
you don't always see the ways in which that actually benefits mm. communities. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I think there's lots of ways to do research and mm. the ways that we try to prioritize in the work we do um, is to ensure that our projects are always um, not done on Indigenous communities or about Indigenous people, but also by Indigenous people, yeah. for Indigenous communities, mm -hmm. and really informed by the questions that matter to the communities, right. not just questions that matter to researchers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so part of it is about like who's doing the research, yep. um, how you're asking the question, and who's at the table when you're thinking right. about what it is we're actually asking. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece is to make sure that we're always like... Um, making sure that community members who are not necessarily like formal researchers or um, members of sort of the academic um, or educational institution are also part of the team and shaping mm -hmm. the direction of the project. So we often work with elders or knowledge keepers. I work a lot with youth, so we always mm -hmm. have young people who yep. are part of the research process. Um, and then we always try to make sure that what we, what we actually write up, we always have, you know, we have the versions that we do in conferences yep. and that sure. sort of thing. We always try to make sure that we have information that can be made easily accessible mm. to communities so that information about a community can be beneficial to the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we have varying degrees of success at that, but it's something that we're really trying to do better. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a quote once that I read about, you know, how indigenous communities are one of the most over-researched communities <laughs> yeah. uh, in the world. There's always yes. research projects happening about uh, yeah. indigenous people. Right. Um, but sometimes it's hard to see how does it actually benefit us. For sure. Um, I think a one one metric or one way of thinking about an impact of research is how is it helping to make life better mm. for a community? How mm. is it helping to make life more livable for the people right. um, that are involved? You know, something that uh, that always comes to mind when I'm interviewing people that are either researching or working with Indigenous people uh, in in various ways is is the the knowledge of the indigenous people themselves mm -hmm. and how that knowledge has been for centuries overlooked and not not sort of uh, brought into the fold in terms of appreciating that there is indigenous knowledge right. that people have already right um, do you did all try to tap into to the the knowledge of the people that are that have been living in the, mm -hmm. those communities and uh, and and look at at how that knowledge can be of benefit as well Absolutely. I, I take the perspective, and I guess I have some biases as <laughs> a person from my community, but I think our communities, our languages, our cultures, our way of life, um, it, contained in that is everything that we need mm. to thrive. Mm. Um, I think part of the work of what uh, Indigenous scholarship and research can do is to elevate the value, the dignity of Indigenous knowledge. Mm. Um, you know, we're doing this project around water boil advisories, but mm. Like our grandmothers taught us that water is sacred, mm -hmm. that, that we don't need another study to prove that that matters, <laughs> that it, it matters for our wellness. It yeah. matters for the future. Um, and we've known that for time immemorial. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think you're right that there's this way in which like the, the, the educational institution doesn't give value to our knowledge. Our knowledge has value in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, and hopefully that will, will be part of the change that is happening that, mm -hmm. uh, that people open up to. Um, well, thanks for answering those questions. And, and I know it's a little bit off topic, but That's it's, uh, you know. Um, so can I go into this other one? Here's another sure. one, if you don't mind. Yeah. Critically conceptualizing suicide and suicidality, especially as occurring among Indigenous and LGBTQ2S and children, youth and adults, and working to better understand the role of complex forms of trauma, structural violence, and environmental change. Sure. 
So um, the sort of mainstream idea about suicide is that suicide is the product of somebody being very depressed, um, that there's something internally wrong, mm. that there's they're particularly vulnerable to depression, and that um, the way to fix what's happening with somebody who's suicidal is to uh, intervene and give them mental health interventions, mental mm. health focused interventions. Mm. This is sort of it's a very simplistic way, I think, maybe of describing the mainstream perspective on suicide. I think this is challenging because this sort of um, takes the position that suicide is the product of somebody being, you know, having mental illness or disability related to psycho psychological well-being. I take a slightly different perspective and I'm exploring that perspective in my work, which is more about um, questions about how do environments um, debilitate, not mm. make people individually more vulnerable, but how do how are environments shaping our sense of um, how livable life can be? And so I think about the fact that um, you know indigenous people in Canada are disproportionately overrepresented in in deaths by suicide. It's a mm. it's an issue that's impacted my family, mm. Mm. and I think most indigenous people that I know are very closely, uh, intimately connected to this issue. But for the last 30 to 40 years in Canada, we've known this. And even going back all the way to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples report, it was, it was identified in that report that while there are psychological causes for suicide, that the two most prominent causes impacting Indigenous people were socioeconomic mm. um, and issues around cultural discontinuity related to residential schools, mm. which, are, which are not... Um, simple variables. Those are very complex structural issues. So things like living in an apartheid economy, like mm. the reserve system, mm. creates conditions where schools, houses, jobs, uh, transportation, mobility, just the ability, even a few decades ago, people weren't allowed to leave a reserve without the permission of mm -hmm. an Indian agent. That's right. These are social and environmental conditions that I think make life unlivable. Um, and I take very seriously that when young people say they don't want to live anymore or or die by suicide, um, I think it's because it's not because they're, you know, they're they're ill. I think it's because they live in a condition yeah. that is actually intolerable. And I think sure. if we take that seriously, we actually have a much clearer sense of where we need to intervene. Which is not to say that we have to fix these young people, but rather that we need to fix the structures and systems which they're living in. So, yeah, as you're saying that, I was thinking a couple of things came to mind. So, and I think I've heard this before somewhere, but I'm, now my next question to you is, and I don't know if you can answer this, I may be an unfair question, but are we focused on the wrong things? Are we focused, what I mean by that is, <laughs> shouldn't we, if, if the issue is not with so much Indigenous people because of the conditions they've been put into, mm -hmm. it's focused on what has been put on them by the colonial system. Right. So, the colonial system is what's brought this on to right. the indigenous people. So are we focused on the wrong thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy for me in an environment where I critique the sort of mainstream model to fall mm. into the like position where I say we're doing the wrong thing. I, th I don't think it's all or nothing, though, mm. truly. I think, I think it matters that we promote access to mental health services, mm. that we support the psychological needs of indigenous young people. But I do think for the last, you know, well, since the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People for mm. the last 30 plus years, mm. I do think we've been focusing on one of those three 
key issues and not actually attending to the two most substantial, which have to do with structures and systems. Mm. So I think I would agree with the assessment that we sometimes are um, focused on the wrong thing. And I suspect part of it is because it allows us to maintain the status quo of what's mm. actually happening. Mm. Um, it's a lot harder to say, well, how do you address economic inequality in a community sure. than it is to send crisis workers up every month to a Northern Reserve? Mm. Um, I think one will involve a much more substantial investment and collective effort by not just the government, but all of Canada mm. to ensure that Indigenous people's rights and, um, well, not just rights as Indigenous people in Canada, but human rights are, mm. are, mm. are honored and, yeah. and, and, and that the inequities are addressed. Um, but I also think it's going to mean fairly substantial rethinking of what it means to provide care. Mm. Um, if, you know, in Attawapiskat, a community made famous in Ontario for mm. a cluster of suicides yep. in the last few years, uh, when they asked Indigenous young people in that community what they thought would help their community thrive, one of the first things on their list was dust control, a community centre, um, also to meet with the Prime Minister of Canada and clean water. Yeah. I think about those things and I think, well, we could we could like train, you know, a hundred mental health professionals. <laughs> but what we actually need to do is we need to make that those conditions more um aligned with what it would mean to like grow up and, and feel cared for and alive in your community. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting answers. Yeah. Um you know, also as you were talking earlier, you mentioned um well, what 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 comes to mind? What I'm gonna what I'm gonna going to say is this connection uh, and the disconnection that that Indigenous people have had from, I guess, the very root of of what what Indigenous people uh, live live to uh, to be, and that is connected to the land, mm -hmm. uh, an unhealthy planet. Uh, unhealthy indigenous people, mm -hmm. you know, uh, are they tied together? Do you, can I ask you how long you've been working in the research area and sure. how long you've been doing this kind yeah. of stuff? So I've been working in this field for about a decade now. Okay. Um, it was my very first job actually when I finished high school, um, before I became an academic and mm -hmm. all these things, I was a youth worker in a community that was like profoundly impacted by okay. suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, and so quite early in my like, you know, adult life, I guess. Being out of high school makes you an adult. I don't know if that's <laughs> true. Um, I I was sort of thrown immediately into a community where there there were deep questions about right. what it what it meant to help people mm -hmm. thrive, and quite immediately issues around our history and mm -hmm. relationship to residential schools mm -hmm. and the child welfare system yep. became very clear yeah. issues. Um, but but I think your your point is right on the money in terms of what I see is one of the biggest issues is you can't talk about like decolonizing mental health or the healthcare or educational system without talking about the fact that colonization in Canada is about the dispossession of indigenous people from our lands mm. and the presence of indigenous people on our lands, like our actual life on that land mm. um, is one of the enduring ways which we have sovereignty of it. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, when I think about the issue of health and suicide, um, I think about land being so fundamental because if we learn how to be in good relationships with land, we learn how to be in good relationships with one another. Mm. Um, they, all of these things are our teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, 
for for me, it's rooted in our in our language. It's rooted in our in our cultural practices, mm-hmm. our ceremonies. Mm-hmm. They teach us. They tell us a story about how to be in relationship with one another mm-hmm. um, through our relationship with land. Mm-hmm. So. It's interesting, like, what does it mean to promote Indigenous youth mental health is as much about promoting, you know, individual well-being as it is about promoting the well-being of the planet. I mm. think that, that those mm. two things mm-hmm. are inextricably connected. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good. Thank you. Good point to take a pause and let people think. Uh, we will be right back here on Element FM and Moment of Truth with myself, David Moses, and our guest, guest this morning, Dr. Jeffrey Anselus. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest this morning in the studio is Dr. Jeffrey Anselus. And we have been talking about uh, some of the research and things that he has done over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so that he's been working on. He's uh, a professor at the University of Toronto and the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And he heads up uh, a center there uh, doing research and focusing on a number of areas uh, specifically with Indigenous people uh, and uh, and the things surrounding Indigenous people. Just before the break, we talked about the connection or the uh, the idea of how Indigenous people view life in terms of that connection to the earth mm-hmm. and 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 our disconnection at this point in time from that and and mm-hmm. an unhealthy planet, unhealthy Indigenous people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was wondering though, you know, because. I'm, I'm wondering if this makes any sense to you. When I think of, when we think of the earth, um, many people view the earth as a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there to be exploited, there to be taken, you know, use the resources up, you know, get, grab all, all the wealth uh, they can out of, out of the planet. Um, the other view, of course, is to be more environmentally conditioned. Think about that this is a living being of the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we certainly need the planet. The planet does not need us. And if we consume everything, if we pollute this place to the end of, of being able to survive on it, it serves us no purpose to do so. Mm-hmm. Yet when we think about the planet in terms of, of, a, of, a, of a, a psychological sort of approach to uh, being green or living simplis, simply off of the earth or living with, with uh, the approach of being uh, in in uh, you know, just just not wanting to leave a footprint, you know, not mm-hmm. wanting to leave that carbon foot, footprint, which indigenous people did for generations and thousands of years, mm-hmm. living you know in harmony with the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the sense, and, and am I wrong? And again, I don't know if you can answer this, but in today's world, it seems like that's viewed as a very simplistic idea of, <laughs> of how to live, and that it's mm-hmm. so simplistic that. It's almost, if I can use the term childlike, to think that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the profound inaction of um, our government mm. and governments around the world to address um, what is truly um, a, a global issue of the crisis of our planet's well, our planet's mm. well-being, mm. Um, us as part of it, is evidence of that, mm. that... There's a cavalier attitude towards um, viewing a relationship to the planet as something more than just a commodity, but that um, the planet sustains us mm. and uh, that our actions you know, are threatening global well-being. I think about, this This might sound simplistic, but I think about the fa- our creation stories. Mm. Um, 
in Cree and also Anishinaabe creation stories, you know, they teach us something about how spirit, Manado or Manitou, you know, is in everything. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the same thing that gives us life is giving life to the whole mm. planet and mm. we're not above it. Mm. Maybe in the way that um, Western science or, <laughs> or Western mm. um, philosophical or religious traditions have taught, mm. but that we are uh, in relationship and we come from the same mm. um, spirit. And I think that that is, um, may sound like a simple idea to some people, to be honest, like the frontiers of, you know, um, molecular science are telling us the same thing that, <laughs> you know, everything, <laughs> everything kind of, that we have, we're in relationship yeah, with. And it's coming full circle. Yeah. Exactly. And, yet, and that's what it goes back to that whole idea of indigenous knowledge mm-hmm. that I was bringing up, you know, and how it hasn't been appreciated. Right. And yet here we are, you know, the forefront of science, as you say, <laughs> and we hear more and more about it's coming around to yeah. way indigenous people view things. And hey, guess what? It may be simple, but, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah, sometimes uh, simple things are quite profound. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And you know, we were just talking uh, about a uh, discussing this idea of sometimes uh, when we when we discuss, uh, and you were talking about you know even in discussion with some people, uh, they don't understand they or they have never thought of something a certain way, mm-hmm. and it, it's I don't know. Does that go back to an us and them kind of thinking, or is it? And how does that, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think as an educator, mm-hmm. you know, the other part of what I do at the university yeah. is teach. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm sometimes lucky to have classrooms full of Indigenous students, but the majority of the time that's yeah. not the case. Right. Um, and so a lot of what I have to do is to invite people who've never thought in these ways mm-hmm. into conversations mm-hmm. about different ways of seeing the world. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, people have all sorts of reactions to that. Sometimes people are overtly hostile or dismissive. Mm-hmm. But I think um, where I find the most power or where I find the most um, movement with people is actually through story. It's mm. when you start to tell a story about how, in the case of what I was talking about before health, you know, when you start connecting the dots of what's happening in these northern communities around right. the environment and the land, and um, people start to to hear and enter into a different way. But I do think the shock and surprise is kind of the first response for people that maybe are a little bit more defended against right. these ideas. Yeah, I guess sometimes new ideas uh, can have that effect on people. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's interesting, though, in this day and age, uh, especially with so much of the world coming at us nonstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's part of the problem, though, too, because there's so much to filter through now. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads into another question, technology. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's something else you're focusing on. It is. Uh, leveraging that that new media and technology to support Indigenous youth well-being. Yeah. Um, the evolving world challenges the opportunities presented to promote Indigenous youth uh, well-being through new media and technology. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about, you know, we often talk about like land as, as um, a type of territory. Mm. I do think that digital spaces places, mm. these platforms that we have to talk about are their own type of territory. Mm. They're, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that people look at it. Some of it's, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. But I would say, you know, if I'm learning about things that are happening in my home community, the first place that I hear about it is not, you know, through a newspaper, it's mm. through Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, the place that I go to connect with 
um, indigenous people across Canada who are thinking about things that I care about as I go on Twitter mm -hmm. and I follow, you know, all my, yeah. all my indigenous influencers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are, there are ways in which these environments are becoming contexts where we are living our life in a mm. particular way. Mm. Um, and for young people in particular, um, social media platforms are a context where, um, they're living their life in all of the best and all of the mm. uh, most challenging ways because mm. these contexts just mirror everyday life. Yeah. You know, they're not, I wouldn't say more risky than everything else, but they're just seen right. and they're public. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we partner in our research uh, center with um, different communities to help them better uh, support young people in these spaces mm. um, or to... Uh, mitigate some of the risks that come through uh, social media contexts. We also partner with social media companies um, like Twitter, mm. uh, for example, to, to better understand how indigenous peoples can better leverage those platforms to, to serve their interests. Um, so one of the things with, that we've learned with Twitter, for example, is that indigenous communities are using it to learn languages or at least yeah. as an entry yeah. point to begin sure. learning, mm -hmm. uh, revitalizing their languages. But in those same networks, um, they're often targeted for, you know, white supremacist content or mm -hmm. um, they get kind of abusive uh, users who start, you know, throwing images at them yeah. or texts at them. Sure. And it can be particularly distressing. Yep. Um, the same thing happens in YouTube comments where, yep. you know, we might have a young indigenous person posting a YouTube video about them talking about their culture and they might get a bunch of really negative feedback from comments from different users. On the surface, that, that might just seem like feedback noise. But mm. for young people, that could be really upsetting. Yeah. And sometimes it can result in um, really substantial feelings of psychological distress. And yeah. so we, we're working with companies to think about the best ways to support youth in those moments, um, how to make the environment safer, um, while also respecting um, people's privacy and um, the, the types of freedoms that these spaces afford. Mm. So when you're when you're saying that uh, just that exposure again, mm -hmm. yet another form of, of you know, uh, uh, I don't, it's not colonialism, but just that racism and, and things that, that come through on that. Um, I think it also could be colonialism. I mean, we, we have evidence in mm -hmm. Canada of social media sites being right. surveilled by policing mm -hmm. right. to monitor indigenous activism. True. Um, we know that um, certain texts. So if you speak in certain ways about the nature of the Canadian state, mm. your content can get flagged. Sure. Um, and so, and we also know that like on a large scale, indigenous people's data is being mined to inform policy decisions. Yeah, absolutely, to, of course. To inform marketing. And so yeah. in those ways, I think it yeah. actually can be seen yeah, as potentially saying, yeah. very colonial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that came to mind as you were saying that is, again, it reflects back on these, the youth or mm -hmm. the people of these that are reading this, uh, self-worth, which it yeah. goes again to, you know, well-being, mm -hmm. but uh, feeling less than. Once yeah, again. yeah. I think, you know, these, I, like I said before, I'm not of the perspective that social media is particularly bad yeah. Yeah, yeah. or worse than everyday life. Yeah. I think what it is, is it's an environment that's like magnifying yeah. and mirroring what's happening day to yeah. day. And I guess what I'm saying by this, this the use of self-worth in that context is that for, for the people that are already coming from that position. Yeah in being in that in that sense of feeling and they're you know not having a, a position of feeling well or feeling whole mm -hmm. uh, less than then that would have an effect on their self-worth 
Yeah, certainly their self-worth and also their sense of uh, power, mm. their agency. Mm. You know, I think a lot of times um, what why people like these contexts of social media and, and, and digital technology is the ways in which it allows them to connect across borders they otherwise mm-hmm. might not be able to move yeah, through. Yeah, sure. Or they're able to find... We have a project that's working with um, Two-Spirit Youth across Canada who... Mm. Are, are isolated in, in northern communities who otherwise wouldn't meet other youth like them. Yeah. And, um, you know, this through these systems and networks, they're able to connect. But in the same way, um, when those networks become sites that are targeted for hate speech mm. or um, abusive conduct, then uh, I think that doesn't just diminish their sense of self-worth, but it also impedes upon their sense of agency and freedom um, and the, the degree to which they can move through the world without... Yeah. Um, being infringed upon. Uh, going back again to the plus of that is that, uh, for instance, yourself or others who are uh, in agencies where they, they want to help right. uh, gives the, the ability to reach out where mm-hmm. they might not be able to otherwise because of the technology, right. which allows you to reach into those areas and, and uh, perhaps share information and get uh, uh, help, hopefully uh, share hope and, and positive uh, results. And get yeah. positive results. My, from my experience, I, you know, we sort of, because we're sort of monitoring what's happening with like digital health mm. practices or um, offering, you know, crisis lines across the country. And what we're seeing is, is that the most ex- successful um, practices are actually those that are just ground up from a community. So youth start developing like a support network for mm. themselves. Yep. For example, uh, the We Matter campaign yep. is an example of something that's just really ground up, young yep. people starting something yep. that they think is valuable. But when we try to replicate that same process and you know put it all over the country, it can kind of fall flat um, because it doesn't <laughs> sure. have that same sort of exactly. drive from the community. Yeah. So I'm really trying to challenge these companies to think about what ways can they come around what indigenous communities are already doing and lift mm-hmm. that work up as opposed yeah. to try to create something right. Right. of their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as we were talking about tech, uh, a story comes to mind about... Uh, uh, someone I know from from Six Nations who said to me, uh, and it's just an aside here, but said, you know, uh, Indigenous people actually had the first uh, the first form of uh, digital communication. And I, I said, you know, he's a, a very clever guy. Smoke signals. <laughs> on off, on off. On off. Zero on one off. zero one. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's a binary said, code there. Yes. I see that. <laughs> I, and I went, yeah, very good. Nice one. Nice I mean, one. I do think our we often think about like technology as this new thing coming to indigenous communities, but but I think that's actually true. We yeah. have we have a dynamic history with our own technologies, and not only that, but some communities are trying to make their use of technologies independent of sort of the mainstream grid. Mm. Mm. Um, so creating their own you know type of internet, their own currencies. There's new cryptocurrencies in First Nations in Canada, which yeah. is really interesting. Right. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're not just consumers of technology. I think we're innovators and creators um, of our own. Yeah, I remember uh, reading something somewhere a while back, and I'm I'm afraid I can't give more information than this. But this whole thing about digital and analog and the the blending of those two mm-hmm. things is mm-hmm. something about the thinking and the planet and the world and where we're going and how we're moving down. Of course, the other thing, and I, I'm sorry I can't elaborate. I don't know if you know anything about that about this digital analog. The way we perceive things, the way we we are moving forward. Mm-hmm. I think this this idea though that like um, I think this split between there's like digital life and then mm. there's life mm. you know in the here and now. Mm. I think those are becoming more and more blurry. Yeah, and I think that some people are afraid of that. 
Yeah. But I think some people are, I, I'm especially young people that I work with, I'm really excited by the ways that they think um, across borders, across um, di- traditional divisions, mm. because they see connections and networks that um, are a little bit more embodied for them or, or self-evident. You know, I think it's really interesting is that uh, film and video, of mm. course, uh, are all uh, 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 oral traditions. We see things, we hear things, and that's the base, that's way we are indigenous people. Oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned from from hearing stories and sharing stories, and and we're coming back to that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, Facebook and and uh, YouTube are, are showing that that uh, mm-hmm. more and more of this is being focused on the visual and mm-hmm. uh, and being able to tell stories that way and share information that way. Um, and of course, the other thing that comes to mind, of course, and when you say that blending or that that blurring of lines is the matrix, and that obviously <laughs> yeah. speaks to people on a huge level yeah. about that blending of mm-hmm. of where we're going. And it'll be very interesting mm-hmm. to see where this ends up taking us. Yes. <laughs> um, and with that, let's see, we're close to a break. Why don't we take a pause? Okay. And let people think about uh, about that, and we'll come back. Are they in the matrix? I'm like stuck <laughs> yeah, that's, on that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so we'll take a pause here on Element FM. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Angelus, and he is an assistant professor of Indigenous mental health, education, and social policy in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto and the Ontario Institute for Studies of Education. We've had a very interesting uh, conversation, I think, so far about a number of things. And uh, I want to I want to just touch on another part of his research that he goes into before we move on. Uh, I find this one particularly interesting using critical indigenous social theories in, in that uh, bracket, indigenous feminisms, queer theories, decolonizing methods, liberation theories bracket to critique mainstream approaches to applied psychology and mental health professions and documenting colonial entrenchment and complicity within the administration of indigenous social policy within the Canadian nation state. I see a lot of people with glazed eyes. I know. I, my, I can just literally picture my grandma <laughs> going, that's too many fancy words. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that put really simply... Um, I think that the way that we are practicing healthcare, education, and social services in Canada um, is 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 happening in a way that actually builds up and upholds the same colonial systems mm. that create the problems mm. in the first mm. place. Mm. Um, and I think that the best way to critique those systems is not just to use the same ideas that come from Western science or Western education, but to use our own knowledge to critique it. Um, So what I mean by that is we have practices that are part of indigenous knowledge for how to resist violence. Mm. We have teachings and ceremonies that teach us about how to be in relationship with one another. Mm. Um, We have ways of negotiating um, what we do when people from other territories show up on our territory. We have, mm-hmm. we have ideas, we have um, traditions and teachings, lots of bundles of wisdom mm-hmm. that will go a long way in helping us uh, do something that would actually help our communities. But part of what, part of what I try to do in my research is to, to actually document how uh, colonial systems have been implicated mm. uh, in ways that are not good for our communities. I guess that goes back to what 
I was trying to raise earlier about uh, we focused on the wrong thing, you yeah. know, looking uh, and focusing and doing more studies and research on Indigenous people instead of the colonial system that got right. us here in the first place, right? So I mean, I'm a psychologist by yeah. training, and psychology in Canada has been implicated in residential schools, mm. eugenics, yeah. uh, forced sterilization, mm. uh, the child welfare movement beginning in the 60s until the yeah. present. Yeah. We're involved in the assessments for incarcerated Indigenous people who might be released on parole. I mean, we are, you know, my profession that I'm a part of is at the front lines of the enforcement of the Canadian colonial policy mm. agenda. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important that, you know, these professions as they seek to indigenize themselves yeah. Yeah. are also honest and kept right. honest about the ways in which they're beginning from a place of already being implicated in the problem. Mm. Nice, nice, yeah. Uh, so that leads us, you know, we were talking also in the break there, uh, you mentioned reports, well, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, which just mm-hmm, came out, mm-hmm. uh, you would you had mentioned that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that, that speaks to some of these things you were, you were just referring mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last two, two areas you want to touch on is, uh, indigenous youth homelessness in Toronto, but I guess it could be in any city or, or anywhere right. in Canada. Yeah. I mean, I, homelessness is an issue in Canada mm-hmm. that we need to be paying more close attention to. Sure. Um, I think that's true, you know, globally. But we have, you know, an increasing um, social and economic inequality in Canada that's pronounced for Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Indigenous young people are, you know, differentially impacted and more at risk for homelessness um, and sort of street entrenchment for a number of reasons. Um, that I think need to matter to Canadians at large, but also need to matter to our communities. Um, things we need to be paying attention to are the ways in which um, those perhaps most marginalized within our own communities, who are often queer youth, two-spirit youth, trans youth, uh, find themselves often most vulnerable to uh, homelessness. They are maybe alienated from their families or their communities. A lot of times they find themselves moving through systems of um, child welfare and then, you know, aging out of child welfare systems mm. without any supports right. in large urban sure. centers like Toronto or yeah. Vancouver yeah. or Montreal. Um, and I think that there's lots of, um, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of factors that are impacting their pathway into homelessness. But I think it's a it's a reminder of our of our ongoing work, not just against colonialism, but our ongoing work to strengthen our relationships and care for our own communities to make sure that. Um, that we are showing up for young people who most need us to be present in their lives. Um, yeah, I guess uh, the thing that, that comes to mind again is, uh, and you mentioned this about about uh, how Indigenous people are, are over-researched and, mm-hmm. and the information that has been done on them. Um, how do you see what you are doing with this can benefit or what you want to do mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. to, to do something about it? I think that the thing that I think is most important, actually, when it comes to the issue of homelessness um, and researching issues around homelessness and street entrenchment, um, is to make sure that Indigenous youth are actually at the table, mm. not just at, as like people giving us information, but right. also as people who are making decisions yeah. and share power in right. decision making that right. impacts their day to day life. Right. Um, so we work really hard to bring you know, I mentioned before queer and two-spirit mm-hmm. and trans indigenous youth into contexts of conversation with people in policy making roles, um, to listen to them, to hear what they have to say, and increasingly challenging 
um, policymakers with words like consent, you know, like are these young people consenting um, to this policy? And mm. if they are not, how do we how do we use different tactics and and mm. and social and political mechanisms to bring greater accountability so that young people are not just given lip service or seen as sort of like a checkbox of consultation, right. but to ensure that young people and their labor um, is recognized as equal um, and and given power. Mm. I think that to me that's that's one way in which what we're doing is advancing maybe the conversation, but um, in particular, ensuring that their solutions are are at the forefront because oftentimes they have the best ideas. Yeah, you know they know what they need yep. better than mm-hmm. than any person in Ottawa right. or any person <laughs> in Winnipeg. You know the, where, where policy decisions are being made about this issue, they they're often best equipped to to inform us about their needs. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense, of course. Yeah. Just like you had mentioned that Attawapiskat, and you know the one thing that that really got me at that comment about what. Uh, the youth and people were saying about that was the desk control. Yeah, that got me too. (laughs) But I mean, this is one of the, you know, people talk about human made uh, climate change issues. Mm -hmm. You know, we often think about like bringing up oil or the purity of water. But those, those two processes bringing up like fracking, for example, Mm -hmm. one of the, one of the ways in which it creates impact is not just through the shipment of that crude oil, but it's also in the ways of the things that it releases from the ground Absolutely. when the ground is dug yeah. up, yeah. Um, and so those those sorts of things really matter. But it's it to me the wisdom of a group of young youth uh, in a, a community like Ottawa-Piscot saying exactly something that's profoundly relevant to yeah. the infrastructure right. and, and 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 the sort of structural relationship of that community to the Canadian state. Mm. Um, so I think youth know what's up. <laughs> I yeah, think they yeah, have for sure. Uh, a lot of the wisdom that we need to move forward, I think we have to just find ways, better ways of not just listening or holding them up for, for like as a token, but mm. but listening in ways and providing pathways for them to actually influence decision making. Okay. Um, now, and again, Indigenous youth uh, activism and uh, collective political action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we're living in a really interesting moment. Um, you know, for the last five or so years living in the kind of lead up and release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had, you know, a season of a lot of public interest um, in understanding Indigenous issues, um, understanding settler Canadian issues. Um, But I think, you know, the elections that have happened across the country and the sort of shifting political tides are introducing a moment where I think Indigenous activism is going to begin to uh, mobilize in new ways. And I think we need to begin really paying attention um, to community ground ground up efforts um, by Indigenous young people and the things that they feel really matter. When I listen to Indigenous young people today, the issues that they're talking about are about issues of the environment in mm. ways that I, I have never mm. experienced the degree of... Um, of commitment and concern around issues around pipelines, issues around water, issues around fracking, mm. issues around the melting north, mm. um, and the ways that that's impacting hunting and and day to day life. Right. Um, I think the issues around mass migration in the world. You know, sixty sixty million plus displaced people in the world, and we live in one of the largest countries in the world with the most economic wealth. That negotiating the relationships of indigenous people. With mass migration is something that Indigenous young people are starting to mobilize around with mm. movements like um, No One Is Illegal or sanctuary movements in northern communities. Um, 
I think really taking a perspective on issues of gender-based violence in relationship to this Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report is something um, that I hear Indigenous young people talking about constantly. And it's not just, um, again, lip service to an issue. There's a deep sense in which this is like life or death for many Indigenous young people, mm-hmm. understanding that if we fail to pay attention to the ways that colonialism is gendered, or that colonialism in particular marks the bodies of women and girls and two-spirit and queer and trans people, um, we're, we're going to miss the mark. We're going we're gonna to fail to do justice on the issues that matter. Um, so I think, you know, people wonder what happened to Idle No More. I think people wonder what happened to um, sort of indigenous parts of the Occupy movement. Um, I think we need to be paying attention right now in these shifting political moments to what comes next mm. um, and the ways in which we can learn from those past movements, um, but also really ensure that we create pathways that are wide open for young people to lead us to the next moment. And is that, uh, is that research-based or is that just talking to youth? To me, that's <laughs> research-based because we, we have to pay attention um, to what youth are saying and mm. to the ways that they are mobilizing in communities because it's happening differently than it happened yeah. before. Right. You know, um, five years ago, Twitter was just being born. Mm. And, and because of that, it mobilized movements like I don't know more and black lives matter. Well, now most youth aren't on Twitter, right? They're on completely different apps. They're using YouTube or they're using Instagram, Snapchat. Mobilization will look differently in that context. We're we're, paying attention Mm. to trends and networks of that type of movement. The other issue that's very distinct is paying attention to the differences between um, the ways that a lot of indigenous activism in the past has happened. Um, or it's been talked about at least in a very, uh, sort of segmented way, indigenous people talking about indigenous issues only. Um, but th- whether that's true or not is another is a much bigger conversation. But indigenous young people today, when they talk about issues that are impacting their community, they're threading issues that are happening locally to issues that are happening all around the world. Mm. Um, issues that like climate change or mm. mass migration mm. or gender-based violence or, um, you know, you name, you name the issue, it's connected to it connected in solidarity with groups around the world. And that really matters that we pay attention to because it shifts away from just being like, you know, the, the Canadian framework of sort of the Indian problem mm. to being something that's, that's about the future of the planet. Right. I think that that's, um, for us, that's why we research it. That's why we pay attention to it. Right. Okay. So listen, you know, I, want, I would like to ask you as a, as a researcher then, mm-hmm. and someone that is, is focused on that kind of things, what, what do you what do you hope what do you hope that your work is going to to do in the future i mean you know your researchers re- research always has a time frame you know yep. beginning and end uh and and you move on to do uh, do other things so what do you hope from from the work that you're doing now you're you're going to be uh, moving and you have some things that are going on in 2020 2021 mm-hmm. what do you hope that these these projects you're involved with will will do, do for the future of uh, indigenous people well, I think the first thing that we want to make a strong case for, demonstrate, um, is that um, paying attention to social, environmental, political conditions in which Indigenous peoples are living their lives mm. matters uh, profoundly if we're going to actually address issues like suicide um, or other mental health issues in communities. Mm. We have to start actually there right. and not start with just 
tinkering with people. Right, uh, right. We need to we need to we need a radical sort of reenvisioning of the systems that mm. people are living in. So mm. I think that part of what my research and the the research that our grad students are working on can do is about making that case stronger. Mm -hmm. The second thing I hope that we can do is that we can help document and elevate the good ideas, the best ideas actually, that communities are already doing. We don't want to really reinvent any wheel, right. uh, but we really want to show what, what wisdom communities already have. The third thing I really want to do in the work that I do as a researcher, but also as somebody mentoring future researchers is, yes. is help uh, emerging researchers learn how to get out of the way mm. and how to respect communities when they say no. <laughs> yeah. um, because I think that that is something that researchers don't know how to do very well. Mm. Um, and sometimes what that means is you have to like, you take a back seat or your ideas take a back seat yeah. and you have to, you kind of go with the flow and you learn what communities need and how they see what you're doing is valuable or not. Mm. Um, but I guess the final thing I would say is that I think a lot of research is built on egos mm. and is built on sort of this idea that people are creating their own little like empires out of their work. Mm. I personally don't really like, it doesn't matter to me that my work has this like long-term ripple. Mm. I think what really matters is that the people that I'm responsible to, the youth in my life that I care about feel like I show up for them. Mm. And if I can do that well, this stuff is like, it's, it's a part of something, but it doesn't rise and fall on me alone as an individual. And I try to talk, talk to that with my students as well, that, you know, they're, they're, they have responsibilities to their communities and to one another. Mm. Um, but we share the work yeah. and I hope that maybe what our work can do is to, to draw other people into the, into the work, but that, um, we carry it together, that we lift each other up together, not just build up on one person's big old project. <laughs> nicely said, <laughs> nicely said, appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you in here today and I really appreciate you taking the time yeah, to come thanks. in and share your thoughts, share what your, your, your research is doing. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's been, it's been really wonderful to hear those ideas and I appreciate it. And, uh, I appreciate your honesty and, uh, you know, I think I, I, uh, may have thrown you a couple of curveballs, but I, <laughs> I really appreciate you, uh, addressing all, all that we talked about here today. Uh, Dr. Jeff Anselusen, he is an assistant professor of Indigenous Mental Health, Education and Social Policy in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto and the Ontario Institute for Studies of Education. All the best with the future that uh, of things that you're working on. We look Thank forward you. to possibly catching up with you another time. I know you had a couple of uh, choices uh, for uh, music today. We will try and play a little bit of one or uh, of, of the two that we can get in at the end of the show. Perfect. What uh, you have a choice of which one you'd like to hear? Oh, I'm feeling Solange right now for sure. Okay, <laughs> so we'll we'll go out with that. But just before we go, tomorrow on Moment of Truth here at 11 a.m. we have Cora McGuire Citric, uh, and she is the uh, the uh, ED of the Ontario Native Women's Association, and also Kim Wheatley. We've had her on the phone uh, previous time. She's the artistic director of the Indigenous Arts Festival. And uh, that's coming up at Fort York. We'll be hearing from her and one other person, Cheryl Blackman. Uh, she's one of the festival organizers. It's been a pleasure listening. I hope you'll listen again tomorrow. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in to Moment of Truth.